0: The following audio presentation is from Parkwood Baptist Church. The purpose of Parkwood Baptist Church is to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. More information about Parkwood Baptist Church is available at parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org. Well, good morning. I'm Scott Hand, I serve as the local disciple-making pastor here at Parkwood, and uh, Pastor Jeff's away today, so it is my privilege and honor to be here to bring the Word of God to you this morning. Our text will be 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 through 10, 2 Corinthians chapter 6, 1 through 10. If you will please stand while we read the Word of God together. Paul writes, in a favorable time I listened to you, and then... Sorry, working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We put no obstacles in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. Let's pray. Father God, we love your word. We thank you for the gift that it is. I pray that as we open it this morning, we will worship you as we receive the word and as we preach the word. Give anointing to us this morning. Your name we pray, amen. Please be seated. Now several years ago, while my family and I were still living overseas, Uh, One morning, our oldest daughter, who was around four years old at the time, she came running in the living room where we were, screaming, Mommy, Mommy, Daddy, Daddy, the chicken lady's outside and she's stealing stuff from our balcony. What? My wife and I had no idea what she was talking about. What's a chicken lady? And what do you mean from our balcony? Yeah, Mommy, yeah, Daddy, she's outside. We didn't pay her any attention. We said, okay, honey, that's sweet, that's sweet. We kept doing what we were doing. Come to find out there actually was a lady outside who was taking things off of our balcony. What we learned was there was a group of women who um, in this particular country, their job was to come through neighborhoods and collect trash and collect things that, that did not belong there and take them away. So they did not know that we had moved into this apartment. And so they thought the stuff on our balcony was left over from previous tenants. And so they were taking it away. And the chicken lady part was because uh, sometimes they would bring animals from the countryside into the market to sell. And she had a wicker basket strapped to her back filled with live chickens. So my daughter thought she was the chicken lady and that she was stealing stuff off of our balcony. Now. I want us to think about this for a second. My daughter came in and said, a lady with chickens or the chicken lady is stealing stuff off of our balcony. Now there's two things going on here. One, there's the message and two, there's the messenger. So the message itself is pretty unbelievable, right? Like we thought, what are you talking about? So the message was unbelievable. And then the messenger was a four-year-old girl with a wild and vivid imagination. So she was pretty unbelievable as well. So when you combine an unbelievable message with an unbelievable messenger, what do you get? You get unbelief. My wife and I did not believe her and we sat on our couch while stuff was being stolen from our balcony. You're probably thinking, what in the world does this have to do with 2 Corinthians 6? Well. Paul understands that the message of reconciliation to an unbelieving world is an unbelievable message. You remember 2 Corinthians 1, 18? He says, the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. So Paul gets it. It's an unbelievable message. So now in chapter six, his focus shifts to the messenger. He wants to make sure that he, and by extension, us, are believable, Do you know the number one reason in Gaston County why people don't want anything to do with Christianity and why they don't want anything to do with the church? It's not because they're they're Muslim or they hold to some other religion. It's not because they're atheist and have no religion. It's not because they've heard the claims of Christ and rejected them. None of those are it. The number one reason is because they don't trust Christians. They don't trust the church. Here's a quote from a commentary on 2 Corinthians 6. One of the greatest obstacles to the progress of the gospel is the bad example of people who profess to be Christian. So that is why Paul in verses one through four of our text, say, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. We put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. So the grace of God here doesn't just mean salvation. It means living daily under the sovereign grace of God. So Paul does not want to be the reason the Corinthians don't truly believe and are impacted by the gospel. So I've entitled this message, No Obstacles, because that's the point. We, as followers of Christ, cannot be the reason people don't believe the gospel. So, Let's see how Paul unfolds his argument. First, the main idea. Ambassadors for Christ, by joyfully enduring suffering with Christ-like character, remove obstacles for salvation. Now, an important thing to point out as we launch into this message is the phrase, working together with him in verse one. This is a fantastic point that Paul is making. It's the same point he made back in verse 20 of chapter five. We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So we have the incredible privilege to work together with the almighty God in a cooperative effort to bring about the reconciliation of his people. This does not mean we're equal partners with God, but rather instruments in his hands that he chooses to use. Now we're going to skip verse 2 and deal with it later in the sermon. So we're about to launch into the sermon. Now, the first 10 minutes or so, it's a lot of information. We're going to go through each of these words that Paul lists. So it's going to be a little academic. I ask you to bear with me. Once we're done, we're going to draw some application. So the first point this morning, ambassadors for Christ joyfully endure suffering. In verses three through five, Paul begins his commendation by listing nine hardships or sufferings that he has faced. These nine hardships can be broken down into three sets of three. Endurance is the setting or the constant throughout everything. Everything that follows has been endured for the sake of the gospel. So the first set of three found at the end of verse four, afflictions, hardships, calamities, all deal with general suffering, but they have slightly different nuances. So The first one is afflictions. This means trials under pressure. This is when circumstances around you, beyond your control, are pressing in on you. Hardships can be translated as necessities. This literally means trouble, but it has to do with a crisis or trouble that leads to emotional distress. So think of Paul being shipwrecked or being stranded on a desert island. These are, it's a a physical thing, but it brings emotional distress. And then calamities, the Greek word here literally means a narrow place. So these are experiences that push us into a corner and make us feel like there's no way out. There's no escape. So the second set of three hardships, these are specific and concrete things that happened to Paul brought on by by other people. These are suffering at the hands of other people. So number one, beatings at the beginning of verse five. This word literally means stripes, you can get the image in your head of what he's talking about here. We know from 2 Corinthians 11 that Paul was beaten on five separate occasions 39 times. He was beaten with rods on three separate times. Next, imprisonments. Acts 16 tells us of at least one occasion in which Paul was thrown into prison. But 2 Corinthians 11, he speaks of being imprisoned frequently. And then riots. Listen to what one commentator said about riots. According to the book of Acts, there was scarcely a major city visited by Paul that did not sustain some social upheaval in the course of his ministry there. As Paul traveled from city to city bearing the message of the gospel, civil disturbances arose in Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Corinth, Ephesus, and Jerusalem. (laughs) His ministry was not an easy one. The third list of hardships are more voluntary things. These are things that Paul took on himself as he suffered for the gospel. So labors, literally hard work. This is simply the hard work of the gospel. It can also be referring to Paul's tent-making job. Sleepless nights are literally just that, nights without sleep. We can all imagine reasons why people in the ministry, why Christians might, might have nights without sleep. And then hunger, Paul often speaks of going hungry so as not to burden anyone while he travels. Now, what's important to note about these lists of sufferings is not that Paul is commending suffering in and of itself. He's not saying suffering is noble because everybody suffers. What distinguishes this suffering, you gotta remember, Paul's point is to remove or not put obstacles for salvation. So his point is that he endured the suffering. He didn't quit. You don't endure things you don't really believe in, right? Sometimes you're doing something and, and a suffering or a hardship or an obstacle arises. If you're not committed to it, if you're not all in, you're gonna quit. You're gonna turn around and run away. Paul said, I did not do that. In the face of suffering, in the power of God, through the work of the Holy Spirit, Paul endured. How did he endure? That's the second point. Ambassadors for Christ joyfully endure suffering with Christ-like character. In verses six and seven, Paul describes the qualities of his ministry or the means or the tools that he employed to endure the suffering. There are nine of them and each of them are preceded in the Greek by by, in, or with. He's indicating these are not things that I do. They're from the Lord and I'm being sustained by the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul's not saying I'm great He's saying, God is great in me. Look at what he did in me. So verse six, purity. This can also be translated sincerity. Paul is referring here to sincerity and purity in all matters. Relationship matters, financial matters, church matters, ministry problems. He remained sincere in all that he did. Next is by knowledge or understanding. Knowledge of the gospel. It's hard to be a minister for the gospel if you don't know and understand the gospel. Patience or long-suffering. I love the nuance of this word. It means long-suffering patience with difficult people. (laughs) Isn't that great? You can just imagine Paul and all the difficult people that he had to deal with. He suffered long with them and by kindness, Both patience and kindness are fruit of the Spirit, mentioned in Galatians 5.22. But patience is reactive. Something happens to you and you react in patience. Kindness is proactive. You do or show kindness. The next set of four are are at the end of verse six. It begins with, in the Holy Spirit. Again, Paul is hammering home this point. These are gifts in the Spirit. This is the Spirit working in his life. In genuine love, Literally unhypocritical love. Paul saying, I'm not loving you, Corinthians, for some other reason. I don't have an ulterior motive to my love for you. My love is genuine. It's Christ like. It's real. Next, in truthful speech. Literally the word of truth. This is referring to the gospel. In Colossians 1 5. Paul says, Of this you have heard before the word of truth, the gospel. So Paul is saying, I speak to you the gospel. I preach to you Christ and him crucified. I don't come with my own words, my own flattering words of wisdom to tickle your ears. This is the gospel, the word of truth that I speak to you. By the power of God. Again, Paul is giving credit to the power of God for sustaining him during the sufferings and for his salvation. Romans 1 16. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. And finally, with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. This is a military reference that Paul uses throughout all of his writings, but it has a spiritual overtone. His point is that we don't battle flesh and blood, we're battling spiritual forces of darkness. He doesn't mention specifically what the weapons are, but most likely the idea is the image of a, of a first century soldier where in the right hand he had a sword or a spear, in the left hand he had a shield. So the soldier's ready to attack and to defend with both hands. That's the image that he's conjuring up here. So first, Paul lists out his hardships. Then he lists out the character with which he endures them. Now he turns in verses eight and nine to a series of paradoxes or contrasts that beautifully describe reality of living as an ambassador in the world. Third point this morning. Ambassadors for Christ... Remove all obstacles for salvation. Now, for years, I have read this these set of contrasts in the wrong way. I've always read them like the first thing that he mentions is not true, and the second thing is true. So Paul's saying, not this, but this. We're not dying. We really live. We're not poor. We're really rich. But that's not, that's not what he's doing right here. How do I know that? Because of verse 3. Remember, no obstacles. He's seeking to remove or not place obstacles. So what he's doing in the paradox is he's saying, yes, they're both true. The first one is true. It's how the world sees me. It's how the world sees believers, ambassadors for Christ. But the second one is the greater truth. The second one is the greater reality. As we look at these one by one, we're gonna make sure we understand them, but also highlight the obstacle that Paul is removing for salvation. So verse eight, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. These two can be taken together for they have similar meanings. <clears throat> certain times in certain places, Paul was dishonored and disrespected and slandered because he was an apostle. Other times he was praised and honored because he was an apostle. It's not hard to understand. It's the same with us, right? When I'm out at the store and I run across a member of Parkwood, there's a mutual admiration and love and respect between us because we're brothers and sisters in Christ we're we're a part of the same local congregation we're joining together in mission to take the gospel to the lost world so there's respect there there's a love there but when I'm in my neighborhood among lost people living for Christ it's different a couple months ago Back when COVID really hit and everybody was losing their jobs, my neighbor lost his job and I hired him and to do some, help me with some work in my yard. And through that, the Lord gave me an amazing opportunity to share the gospel. I shared my testimony. I laid everything out for him, how I'm fully sold out for the Lord because nothing in this world can satisfy me. And I was so excited. And when I got done, he was looking at me like this. And his exact words were, dude, you're crazy. So in that moment, it wasn't a mutual admiration and respect. I wasn't honored in that moment. And that's what Paul's getting at. As we live and speak the message of reconciliation to a lost world, there ought to be people who don't like you. In the Beatitudes found in Luke 6, Jesus says in verse 26, woe to you, when all people speak well of you. Ha! What? He says, so their fathers did to the false prophets. Our goal is not to make everybody like us. This doesn't mean we go looking for conflict, but what it means is naturally, if you are obeying Jesus and living your life as an ambassador, you're gonna be talking to people about their sin about the reality of eternity in hell separated from God, about their need for a savior. And that's gonna offend some people. Remember, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. So what Paul is doing is he is removing the obstacle of the fear of man. We do not dumb down the gospel because we're afraid of offending somebody. We do not let the fear of rejection or a broken relationship Hinder our service to the Lord. Next, at the end of verse 8, Paul says, We are treated as imposters, and yet we are true. The word imposter could also be translated deceiver. This is the accusation that Paul was lying to people, he was deceiving them, he was leading them astray. It's the exact same accusation the Pharisees leveled against Jesus in Matthew 27. A lost world does not believe that Jesus is the answer. So when we tell them that he is, we're seen as deceivers. We're seen as leading people astray. Yet our message is true. So the obstacle Paul is removing here is deceit. We're not shifty people. We're not dishonest people. We speak the truth in love. Next, at the beginning of verse nine, Paul says, you see us as unknown yet we are well known. Paul was relatively unknown to the outside world. In fact, he was often labeled a nobody by his opponents, but that was okay with him. He did not seek to be famous. He didn't parade around the city with great fanfare like a celebrity. Yet to the churches he planted, to the missionary partners that he worked with and to his fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, he was well known. And then of course, most importantly, he was known by God. Second Corinthians 5, 11, what we are is known to God, he says. There is no greater fame than to be known by God. So Paul is removing the obstacle here of seeking to be famous. We don't become Christians and live as ambassadors to become famous. The next two contrasts can be taken together. Verse nine, Paul says, you see us as dying and yet we live, as punished and yet not killed. 2 Corinthians 4 16, the outer self is wasting away. Paul knows dying intimately. He faced death countless times, but at the point of this writing, he had not yet been killed. He lived a life of endurance through immense suffering. And of course, the ultimate life that he had and we have is eternal life in Jesus. Because we are in Christ, we are alive. The obstacle Paul removes here is the fear of death. We should live as ambassadors with a certain amount of risk. We cannot run from death. We cannot always do what is safe. There's a phenomenal little 50-page book by John Piper called Risk is Right. And in it, he talks about the myth of safety and how We live our lives trying to make everything safe when in reality, the Bible tells us we're not even promised tomorrow. We're not even promised that we're gonna make it home. So everything we do is a risk. Piper says, there's a hypocrisy that lets us take risk every day for ourselves, but paralyzes us from taking risk for others or for the gospel. We are deluded and think that such risk may jeopardize a security that in fact does not even exist. So for Paul, he took risk for the gospel. And the only way he survived was because the Lord's hand was on him. Next, in the beginning of verse 10, Paul says, you see us as sorrowful, yet we are always rejoicing. Of course, of course Paul was sorrowful. Who wouldn't be after all the... The, the suffering and the, and the turmoil that he went to, that's understandable. Yet in his sorrow, he did not lose his joy. This point is so crucial. We're gonna come back to it in the so what. But for now, Paul is removing the obstacle of happiness and ease. Notice I didn't say joy, but happiness and ease. The idea that we become Christians so we'll always be happy is not real. The idea that we live for Christ so nothing bad will happen to us, it's impossible. We live in a sinful world. It's not possible to escape suffering. But what is possible is that we live with joy in the midst of it, and we'll come back to that later. In the middle of verse 10, Paul says, "'You see us as poor, yet we are making many rich.'" This one is as obvious as the nose on our faces. Paul is not in the ministry to get rich. He's not boasting about his wealth. He didn't live in luxury but oh, the glorious riches of the gospel. That's what we give. In Colossians 1, 24, Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. To them, the church, God chose to make known how great are the riches of the glory of the mystery. What mystery? Christ in you. We're not in it for the money, Paul says. We're in it to make others rich in Christ. So the obstacle Paul removes here is the pursuit of wealth. Lastly, in verse 10, the end of verse 10, Paul says, you see us as having nothing yet possessing everything. This one is closely tied to the previous one, but here the focus is on material possessions. Paul did not have a lot of earthly things so he says, you're right. I don't have a lot of earthly stuff, but we possess everything. Romans eight sixteen. Paul says, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. If children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. The obstacle Paul removes here is one of earthly comforts. We're not in it for the stuff. We shouldn't care about the stuff. But sometimes I get so angry with myself for getting wrapped up in the stuff. I had a moment the other day where it was a dad moment where I just, I thought, Lord, what am I doing wrong? (laughs) My kids wanted to watch a particular movie. So they grabbed the remote control, they turn on the TV, they opened Netflix and they searched for the movie and they they can't find it, it's not there. So they switched to Amazon Prime and searched for it there and they couldn't find it. Then they tried Disney Plus, can't find it. Then they tried Hulu, couldn't find it. Finally, they switched to YouTube, couldn't find it. And here's the kicker, we got mad, including me. (laughs) We got mad that the five video streaming services that we have on our 55 inch Apple TV at my house did not provide us with the particular form of entertainment that we wanted in that particular moment. (laughs) What? It's so easy to get wrapped up in the stuff. Here's the point though. The lost world cannot for one second think that the stuff is tied to becoming a Christian. Like if you become a Christian, you'll get stuff. Or if you live for Christ in this world, he's gonna love you more and give you more stuff. If we draw them in with the stuff, they're not coming to Christ, they're coming to the stuff. Paul says no, We're removing that obstacle. Now, that was a lot of information. (laughs) A lot of definitions, a lot of words. I want us to take a deep breath, back up a second. And as we get to the so what, I have one statement and one question. First, the statement. Now let's go back to verse two of our text this morning where Paul says, behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the time for salvation. Paul is quoting from Isaiah 49, specifically from a prophecy regarding the servant of the Lord. Isaiah speaks of the time in the future when the Lord will be favorable to his people and bring about the way of salvation. Now, Isaiah's prophecy was fulfilled in the ministry of Jesus, who through his death and resurrection accomplished reconciliation between God and man. So Paul is using this prophecy to help the Corinthians understand that now is the time for God's favor. You don't have to wait for the Messiah to come. He's already came. He's here. It's now. Now is the time of grace. In a sermon on this text in the mid-1800s, Charles Spurgeon took some time to talk about this idea of now being the time for salvation. If you'll permit me, he says it better than I do. I'm just gonna read a small section from his sermon. He says, the great mischief of the lost is that they procrastinate. It's not that they resolve to be condemned, but that they resolve to be saved tomorrow. It's not that they reject Christ forever, but that they reject Christ today. The scripture says now is the day of salvation because sinners need it now. Lost sinners are under the wrath of God. They stand condemned now. And the beauty of the text is that now is the acceptable time. Some unconverted hearers claim that they must first think about it. But what will be the result of their thinking? After they have thought so much, are we to imagine they will think themselves into salvation? Others say they cannot be in a hurry to make such a decision. A hurry? What did the psalmist say in 119.60? I hurried, not hesitated to keep your commands. When a person is on the edge of hell or the borders of the grave, do not talk of hurry. When it is a case of life and death, let us be quick to make a decision. Still others claim they do not feel prepared at this moment to make a decision. As if living another month in sin would make them more prepared to believe. Others still say their heart feels hard. Nothing in the word of God leads us to believe we can in any way soften our own hearts. This is a mighty work of grace. Hearts that have been exposed to the gospel and rejected it will certainly grow harder over time, not softer. The text says now is the acceptable time. So I beg you and plead with you, if you are here this morning and you have not yet trusted Christ alone for salvation, now is the day of salvation. I will be more than happy to talk with you after the service. So will anyone in a red Parkwood shirt who would love to lead you into a saving relationship with Jesus. Now the question, do you or do we joyfully endure suffering with Christ-like character? As I was going over this sermon with my wife last week, she said something very profound. She said, okay, honey, this is good. I get it. I understand it. But I have a, I have a question, How? How do I rejoice in my suffering? It's a phenomenal question. And I think it's only fair that in application to this, to this message, we, we talk about how. But I think first we have to go back and ask a preliminary question. Why, in commending himself to the Corinthians, did Paul choose to talk about suffering? Because really that's what the whole text is about, right? He lists out his sufferings. Then he talks about how he endured the sufferings. Then he lists the paradoxes, which half of them are bad. People dishonor us, they slander us, they think of us as deceivers, as unknown, as dying, as punished, as sorrowful, as poor, and as having nothing. These are not positive things. I think if I was gonna commend myself to you, I would talk about positive things. I grew up at Parkwood, I have loving and godly parents. Pastor Jeff was my youth pastor. I have been to seminary. I've spent time on the mission field. That's what I would talk about. I wouldn't talk about my sorrow and my suffering. Yet Paul does. Why? I think here's the answer. Because when we rejoice in our suffering, we are exemplifying the message of the hope of the gospel to a hopeless world. The world doesn't need another positive, chipper, happy, easy mantra or platitude. It's easy to be nice and to love and to forgive when things are going well. The world knows how to do that. What they don't know how to do is to joyfully endure suffering. So let's turn to First Peter in your Bibles. First Peter chapter 3. And we're going to look at verses 14 and 15. 1 Peter 3:14 and 15. Now, the apostle Peter wrote this book to believers who were suffering in exile. Their lives were not good. They were suffering. So Paul writes this to them as an encouragement and as a teaching on how to endure suffering. Starting in verse 14, Peter writes, "Even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them nor be troubled." But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. This is a profound thought. What Peter is saying here is that if, in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of your pain, you are still able to honor Christ as holy, To rejoice in your sufferings, to keep your joy, people are gonna notice. People are gonna look at your life and see your suffering, then look at your joy and go, What? How? How can you still be joyful when you're going through what you're going through? The lost person is gonna look at you in the midst of your terrible pain and go, I want that. I don't know what that is, but I want it. I want to be able to endure my suffering like that. And then, in that moment, when they ask you, how do you do that? You speak the gospel. You speak of your hope. You speak of Jesus, the sure and steadfast anchor of your soul. You speak of the resurrection which brings you life. That's why Paul chooses his suffering to commend himself because the lost world longs to see someone that has something so unshakable, so resolute that no amount of suffering can take it away. So back to the how, how is it possible to remain joyful in the midst of suffering? Let's turn to Psalm 119, verse 25. Sorry, Psalm 119, verse 25. The psalmist says, my soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. Life is found in the word of God. I, can, I know some of you might be saying, really pastor, the Bible, that's your answer? That's the church Sunday school answer. One of the biggest objections that I get when, I talk about, when I'm talking to people about the gospel is that the Bible is outdated. It's irrelevant. Christians are out of touch with reality. We have our heads in the sand. They say, really, the Bible, that's the Bible's answer to be joyful always? Dude, wake up. Open your eyes, man. People are dying. People are getting cancer. Racism is everywhere. Riots are happening. There's a virus that's killing people. I'm depressed. I live with chronic pain. My husband just died. My kid has cancer. What do you mean be joyful always? Wake up. That's what the world says to us. Let me be clear on something. The Bible is living and active Is sharper than a two-edged sword and it does not, and God does not ignore our emotions. The Bible is not absent of reality. Let me prove it to you. I'm gonna read some verses to you. As, As I read them, I want you to just lay them on top of the world right now. See if they resonate. Lay them on top of your life and suffering that you've experienced. See if they resonate. I am weary with moaning. Every night I flood my bed with my tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. My eyes waste away because of my grief. Psalm 6. My life is spent with sorrow. My years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity. and My bones waste away. I've been forgotten like one who is dead. I become like a broken vessel, Psalm 31. I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged, Psalm 25. Now, I could go on and on and on and on and on. The Psalms are filled with that kind of language. Don't tell me the Bible is irrelevant. That's real, folks, that's emotion that I have experienced and I haven't even been through tremendous suffering. I know some of you feel this way because I've had conversations with you. This is real. But here's why we need the Bible. The Bible doesn't leave us there. Listen to these same passages. Listen to what it says. Remember Psalm 6, the flooding my bed with my tears? Listen, Six, Psalm 6 goes on to say, But the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayers. God is there in your grief. You're not weeping for nothing. The Lord hears you and he is with you. How about Psalm 31? This speaks of my strength failing and bones wasting away. It says, but you, O Lord, are my rock and my fortress. Ha! My body's wasting away, but you, God, are my rock. How about Psalm 25? Remember me, lonely and afflicted? Good and upright is the Lord. The paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness. You're not alone. The Lord is faithful and loving. So brothers and sisters, how do you rejoice in suffering? This is the answer. You read this. You study this, you memorize this, you immerse yourself in this. This is the word of God to you. It's his plan of redemption. It's his rescue story for his people. It's his love letter to his bride. It's his loving instruction from a father to his children. He's not ignoring your sorrow, he wants to be in it with you. We must be careful never to say that God is absent in our lives, that God is silent, or that God doesn't care until we have devoted ourselves to his word because in it, he will show up. Now, I would be remiss not to mention several brothers and sisters of this local congregation and their families who have recently endured, joyfully endured suffering, and then we'll be done. I want you to know you have truly blessed my heart as I have witnessed this to sit right over there and watch David Ammons at the funeral of his nine-year-old son and to hear him say, to God be the glory. To listen to, 15, to 15-year-old Lily Grace Bailey sing at her mother's funeral and cry out to God, my hope is in you alone. To talk to Rena and Joel Abernathy after the death of Rena's mother and to literally see them crying and smiling at the same time. To hug an exhausted Dana Martin after losing her husband and realize that I don't have to say anything at all to see the tremendous grief and the sustaining joy in her eyes. And then to not really know what to say at all to Jim Wright after losing his wife of 52 years. Only only to have Jim hug me and tell me it's going to be okay. Folks, that's joy in the sorrow. That's it. That's what the world doesn't have unshakable joy in the midst of terrible pain. Now, for those of us who have never experienced that kind of sorrow and that kind of pain, because I put myself in that category, we look at those people in those situations and we say, I could never do that. Here's the miracle you're right. You couldn't. And I couldn't either. And they couldn't either. It is only through the deep and abiding love of God's word and the all-sustaining work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that God shows up in our suffering. And when God shows up and causes us to joyfully endure it, we live and speak the message of the hope of the gospel to a world that so desperately needs it. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We are so grateful for your goodness in our lives. We are grateful for the word of God. We confess, we neglect it far too often. Sometimes we complain, we don't understand it. Help us to understand your word. Help us to commit daily, regularly to pouring over your words to us as a father to his children. Father, I wanna pray for the people right now who are currently going through sorrow, who may have heard this sermon in this text and think, I can't do that. That seems so far away from me right now. I pray you will show up in their lives today. That right now, as we sing the gospel, as we've heard the gospel, and as we are around people who are impacted by the gospel, that those individuals who are suffering will know that you love them and that you care, that you hear their weeping, you hear their prayers. And I pray for joy. I pray that we will fight for joy. Be with us now as we worship. May we be impacted by your word. In your name we pray. Thanks for listening to this audio presentation from Parkwood Baptist Church, located in Gastonia, North Carolina please feel free to share this message with others. For more information about Parkwood Baptist Church, visit parkwoodonline.org. That's parkwoodonline.org.